Okay. Good evening, everyone. Oh, it's louder. Uh, I just want to say thank you for this wonderful church. We've done so many amazing events here, and the people at this church are just the best people. So if you're looking for a church to attend, this is it. Uh, also, what I want to say is thank you so much for coming out and supporting University Bookstore. We've been around since 1900. We are the original independent bookstore in Seattle. We need you. So thank you so much for coming out and supporting us, much like KUOW. We're member supported, uh, especially when we, we do these events it's wonderful to uh, have you all come out. Uh, and not only that, you guys are the best. We've, we always have like the best audiences, so thank you, thank you. Um, okay, so let's start. Uh, Sally Field is going to be in conversation with Nicole Broder, who as you know, has been a columnist with Seattle Times for nearly 20 years focusing on local and national issues and the people behind the headlines, as well as popular arts and entertainment figures. No doubt you've also seen and heard Nicole on social media and on local radio and television. Prior to the Times, she was a Metro columnist for the Raleigh, North Carolina News and Observer, and a feature writer and columnist for the Orange County Register in Santa Ana, California. Sally Field, had me at Sister Bertrill. <laughs> she somehow made nuns seem like humans, which was important for me. I was a Catholic, so that was a really important thing for me. Uh, with a sweetness and humor to go along with a really cool magical power. I think one of the amazing gifts she brings to her craft is her ability to open her heart to help connect us with our own humanity. She has written a book that is honest and raw, full of love and wonderful language. She's a great writer. You have a treat ahead of you if you haven't read the book. I think you'll be inspired by it. So please help me welcome Sally Field. Good night, everyone. Thanks for coming out. Thank you. <laughs> we like you. Hi. 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 Can we just take her in for a second? Is everybody doing that? Okay, so while we're taking her in, can we talk about your skin regimen, please? 
And if you tell me it's oil of Olay or just a little ivory here and there, I'm going to throw you down the stairs. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not much. I, well, what do you do? I mean, it sounds like that question we heard where you turn it, turn use, it back on each other. You I know? use ponds. And do you drink? Don't, didn't you black out? Didn't you black out? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we already had this conversation. What do you like to drink, Sally? Let's start there. As much as I can. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I've never blacked out, I swear to you. And I don't like beer. I'm sorry, I wish I did, because everybody seems to. Everybody. I don't like, I don't. And they I really like, do. I do like wine, though. Okay, that's great. So, yeah, I mean, while we're on the subject, yeah. what a great week in America this has been. And... Um, I, I don't was, know. It was something. Yeah. It was something. I don't know that we can call it a great week quite yet. I don't know. It is, it is something, and something in progress, and certainly, uh, you know, like they say, democracy is messy, but woof, what a mess. What a mess. So let me ask you this. What do you do in order to not scream into a pillow and cry every night? I, I don't. I scream into a pillow and I cry every night. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm completely angry and frustrated and frightened. Frightened, 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 frightened. And, and stumped. I don't get it. I don't know. Somebody tell me why, what. I don't get it. <sighs> but here we all are and we're together and let's just be together. So I think at a time like this, too, this is a lovely, lovely, wonderfully written book. Um, have people read it yet and, and loved it as much as I did? It's a wonderful book, and it's beautif beautifully written. I had no idea. Sometimes people don't write as well as you do. You know, they just, I just think you're a gorgeous writer, and to do it and do it this well is a real master masterpiece. Just oh, congratulations God, on the you, book. Nicole. It's thank wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. So um, I interviewed for you for the paper, yes. so I'm going to ask you questions that um, I wanted to know, ask you again. And um, I'm, I'm mostly interested in where the book began, uh -huh. because um, we know that um, the book was created from piles of... Uh, magazines and letters and your personal papers, if that's what you call them. And um, it took you seven years to write this book. Mm -hmm. So talk about the impetus for it yeah. and how you saw it in your mind when, once you got going. The problem, I mean, if, if, I can't call it a problem now, but the thing is I never saw it in my mind, not, not at all. Um, seven years ago, um, in November, uh, on November 6th, my mother died, my 65th birthday. And at that time, I thought I had done all the things that you think to yourself you should do when your elderly, ill parent is, is, is passing or reaching that time. We'd had those conversations, the really difficult ones. We'd, we'd reached a, a, a healing point we, of, of wounds that we'd never even talked about, like... We were at a good place, and, and when she was gone, when she left, I felt deeply disquieted, like there was something festering on me, itching and gnawing, and, 
and I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how to find it. And serendipitously, right at that time, um, a good friend of mine who is the co-founder of the Omega Institute in upstate New York, and if you don't know what that is, it, it, look it up. It's a wonderful place, a big, huge, green campus where they bring in great teachers and, and you have classes or, for instance, um, every year in, in, um, in the fall, I think at some point, they would have uh, um, a thing called Women in Power Conference. And for four days, they would bring in the most extraordinary women on the planet. One year, they had all the Nobel Prize winning women who came in, except the ones who couldn't get out of their country. <laughs> but, um, and this year, after my mother passed away, um, Elizabeth called and said, would I be there? And I said, yes, 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 I will be there. I'll be there sitting in the back, just glad to be in the, in the group of, of you know, 2,000 women. And she said, well, that's good because I want you to give the keynote address. <laughs> and I said, well, I, I can't possibly give a keynote address. I know, I know, what, I know what women are coming there. I can't do that. I can't, I can't do that. I have nothing to say. And she said, yes, you do. And I, I heard a bell in my head. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And I think they thought I was going to write like a little 15-minute speech that said, turn to your neighbor and say, welcome, introduce yourselves, and, and hope we have a great four days together. Tell them where the cafeteria was. And, um, that's not what I wrote. I, I wrote about an hour-long speech. It was raw and personal and emotional, and I stood up there shaking, just quaking the whole time. And honestly, what I felt from this, it was dark, it was a dark audience, so I couldn't see faces like I can see now. So it was this big, dark, faceless, unfamiliar but totally familiar audience that I feel like I've been communicating with my entire adult life. And what I felt from them to me, from me to them, just surged me and informed me that I had to find this story. Um, someone said to me once, well, why didn't you just, you know, write things in your journal. And that wasn't it. It's that I knew that I had to try to learn a new craft. Because it was only in the craft of acting that I had spent my entire life trying to understand and own, that I had been forced to go inside myself and find pieces of myself that I didn't want to know, that I would not have known otherwise. And I realized that it would be only in trying to force myself to learn another craft, whatever it took. If it took till I was 212, which chances are I wouldn't be all that good at 212, but um, if it took a very long time, that it would be only in forcing myself to learn a new craft would I make myself go into the boxes of memorabilia that I had carted around with me and never read. 
letters from my father that were 40 years old and I'd never read because I was afraid to know what was in them. Go back and look at my own journals because I was afraid to know what I had written 30, 40 years ago. Um, and look at my mother's journals. Look at my father's things. Really lay it all out there. Lay all the pieces out there and see that if I could put them together and it would show me the picture that I couldn't see at the time. So the entire book was an exploration, was a search for something that I didn't know what was there. Um, that's why it began seven years ago, and here we are now. Who knew? Who knew? But again, it covers many, many things, not just your amazing career from the very, very beginning, from Gidget to well, let's see, you're on Maniac now. You seem to pop up everywhere. Um, Mary Todd Lincoln, I mean, the span is pretty amazing. It ends at Mary Todd. Um, and also some hard things. Um, um, you were molested by your stepfather, and these are things that were brought up right away when the book first, when you first had a story in the New York Times, I was struck by that was the headline. And I thought, wow, there's so much more in there just about how the actress that you were or and still are and Lee Strasberg. And so what were some of the hardest things to write about? Once you decided you were going to do this, did you kind of circle around some of these experiences or did you just go right in there? Um, certainly when I, when, I did, when I wrote it, I, I, um, I wrote it all by myself, and, I, and essentially, at the beginning, I thought, well, I I've never done anything like this. I'm not a writer. I've never written an essay. I never went to school. You know, I never was in a philosophy class where they said, write eight pages on Play-Doh and deliver it next Wednesday. So I thought, well, I need somebody. I need somebody to be with me. And I, I boldly reached out to a, a literary agent who represented some of the writers I most regard, like Elizabeth Stroud and Jane Smiley, and I'm, this is all gonna come around and actually answer your question in one minute. Um, Take your time. And so, um, she said to me, she said, uh, I, I wrote her on her website, because I didn't know her, and I, wasn't, I didn't have the guts to call her, so I knew her website, and I said, Dear Miss Friedrich, my name is Sally Field, I'm an actor. I've been an actor since I was seven, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and she wrote back and she said, well, how nice to hear from you. Thank you so much. I'm so flattered you would reach out to me. But I don't think we're a match. <laughs> and I went, okay. And uh, she said, but I'd love to read your speech. This was right after the speech at Omega. So I sent her my very long, hour-long speech. And she wrote back and said, well, when next you're in New York, might we meet? So I dashed to New York, which I was there a lot because I, I had just purchased an apartment in New York. It was like a dream come true for me. Um, and I went to her Midtown office and she talked to me for a minute. And she said, you know, I, I, I read a tiny bit of voice in this speech, not much, not much. Um, and when I talk to you, I don't think you know what story you're telling. And I said, I don't know what story I'm telling. That's the whole point. I have to find it. I don't know, what it's th I don't know what's there. 
And she said, well, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go home and write 50 or 80 pages and bring that to me. And if I respond to that, I'll represent that and not you. <laughs> but oddly enough, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. Because that meant that she would feel that the work was worth her time and expertise. And she wouldn't be looking to sell some preconceived idea of a celebrity. Because whatever preconceived idea anyone might have had was going to be wrong. Did anyone ever ask you before to write? Oh, yes, through the years. You know, um, agents and, and many wonderful publishers would come to me and say, won't you write a, a memoir? We really think it would be great, and we know just who to write it for you. And I would go, well, that's, I'm, thank you so much. I'm flattered. No, no, no. Um, this was always somewhere brewing in me that I would do this, always, always. Uh, I, I didn't know how it would be or that I would do it. So when I went home with Molly's assignment, I had assignment, woohoo, I've got an actual task. And I went home, and Molly said, right from the get go, right from page one, don't be episodic literally once upon a time, there it is. So I started to write, and 50 pages turned into 100 pages, turned into 200 pages, turned into a year, turned into two years, turned into 250 pages. And Molly would touch, touch in. She would go, you know, and she would write to me, not on the phone ever, just, you know, seasonally, she'd say. <laughs> so she'd say, it's fall, Sally. <laughs> fall is here. Are you still there? Are you writing? Is there any, have you left it? Have you gone away and forgotten? And I said, no, Molly, I've not forgotten. I'm still here. I swear to you, I'm still here. And about um, maybe three years ago, I sent her 250 pages or so. And um, <laughs> she then wrote back, she said, and wrote back, and mind you, I printed all of these. I have them somewhere. I, I have a whole, all these documents. She wrote back and she said, these are very young pages, <laughs> but I'm on your team, which was a big key moment. And I said, Molly, I will finish this. I will finish this because now it's become my whole life. I will finish this, but I don't know that I'll have the guts to publish it. And she said, I can tell you right now that I'll be the one standing here urging you to publish it. So I kept going. Um, ultimately, I sent it to her, a finished manuscript, one year ago, September, when she touched in and said, it's fall, how about it? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm about to send you a manuscript. So no one had read anything but Molly, really, a little bit. And then... All of a sudden, I was meeting with editors, the editors who were really interested in publishing it, 11 of them, as fast as I could, and people were reading it. And it was hard for me to even wrap my head around the fact that anyone is re reading it. And, and all the time I'm going, Molly, is it too late to just say, oh, never mind, sorry to waste your time? <laughs> she said, no, it's too late, I'm sorry. And even after, in November, I sold it to you know, Grand Central and Hachette, I would even say to my editor, wait, wait, Millicent, wait, 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 wait. I, maybe just give me a little while to even think about this. I don't know. I don't know if I want to do this. I knew full well um, that when it did 
get into the, when it was published, and the media mostly got a hold of it. Sorry. That it would be, <laughs> not you, because you even Sorry. apologized for it, that it would be cherry-picked. Yeah. It would be cherry-picked. And I don't blame them for that. It, you know, it is, certainly right now, I'm not going to blame the press for anything. Thank you. They are my heroes. And I understand, and I knew full well, that there are parts of the book that are kind of shocking. They're very shocking. And um, they, I can't say that they were hard to write. The whole thing was hard to write, but it wasn't that. It became my whole life. And so um, I... I used acting exercises to put me back into these places, back into these moments and these rooms and these times, and was literally there to feel and think and be what, it, what I was at that time. So they are shocking and they are raw and they are emotional and, and um, just don't talk to me about it. Pretend you don't know that, that I wrote this. <laughs> because... Yes, and now as I'm touring all across the country, uh, I mean, Nicole is, is so wonderful. I had spoken to her before, and I knew how wonderful she is, but I will talk to people that are really, don't know how to handle this kind of information in and, and, and big crowds, and, um, and it's, it's interesting for me to negotiate this, especially because I'm a person who's never, ever talked about this. But as we're hearing this now in the, in the world, some of these traumatic episodes never leave your mind. They are indelibly imprinted in my personality. I've spent my lifetime trying to undo some of the patterns that it set. And um, like what we've seen in the news recently, like what Dr. Ford talked about, it doesn't matter how many years go by. They are new, they are now, they are fresh and scabless. And that's the truth. That's true. Somebody please write that down. New, now, fresh, and scabulous. Because I think that's in the book, the actually. I'm quoting myself. Right now. The quote of the century. <laughs> Um, difficult to expose yourself this way, even though you've been doing this through your, your craft for, for years and decades. Um, the response, people who write memoirs always worry about how it's the ripples, how it's going to affect their family first and then other people and then their reputation or the way people see them. What was, your, um, what was the response like? How, how was it for you when you sent this book out into the world? How was the first publishing well, day? Did you pace the carpet? No, raw I mean the big things. The biggest things were, of course, um, ha having my sons read it. Mm -hmm. My sons had not read it, and I was scared to death over that. Um, and they did not read it until like March of this year. Um, it had already been sold, so I didn't have them read it and ask their approval. Um, my youngest son was a, much more aware of it than my older sons, uh, who are in it more. Um, and my youngest son, Sam, was incredibly important and supportive to certainly the tail end of the writing. 
uh, when I was struggling, and he was the only one I was sort of using as a sounding board. Um, but I was so overwhelmed with my son's um, generosity and um, their notes. I want to say, did I ask for notes, boys? <laughs> but they were so smart. The notes were so smart and right, and I, I, I used all of them. Um, and I noticed um, in each of, with each of them in a different way, it opened up a new dialogue between us. It sort of shifted our, our relationship ever so slightly. Uh, but I'm noticing it, absolutely. And as how so are you noticing it? What do just you mean by in that? how they talk to me, how they reveal pieces of themselves to me. Oh. That's what's interesting. Um, my oldest son isn't here, thank God, so I can say. <laughs> Don't tell him. But especially with my oldest son, I noticed him being, allowing himself to be more vulnerable with me. Um, and uh, it's just, it's, it, is, it, it is changing where we stand with each other. I, I think my youngest son, that he, he was the one that said to me, and I was so moved, he's, he said that um, he'd always been proud of me, but he'd never thought before of me as his hero. Um, he said, because... I had allowed him to see me as flawed, and it enabled him. And I went, wow, not only is that really moving, but it's smart. Um, and so I think with my sons, at least, now the public, I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't got know. a lot of people and here. I mean, come yes. on. The public, that's pretty good. They're and up the in the public, rafters here. I'm so. just not really sure. And honestly, I, I, I don't want to say this in front of you, but I don't really care. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm sure I would love you all as individuals, but I, don't, I just don't do things just to please you. Um, and... Isn't that great? Isn't that a great feeling? Yeah. So have you, that's how, how, it's good to get these things out, but do you feel changed? How have you changed? How, this is, this is good. You're really, you're, you're got it. You're just, this <laughs> well, is no little you. flying nun people. She's not playing around anymore. Well, this is, my, um, at the end of it, the tail end um, last uh, September. Actually, at the same time, I was beginning to work on this show, Maniac. So literally, I was a maniac. I mean, it was like, ah! And um, that my life always does. Everything always in my life happens exactly at the same time. So the, the, all the pieces are in the air. And I would, Sam, my son Sam was finishing his, um, um, he had a, was getting a master's degree at Columbia in, in screenwriting. And uh, my children have all gotten the education I long to have. And I don't think any of them appreciate it as much as I would. <laughs> but um, he was just finishing his degree, and he had, apartment in, he had an apartment in Brooklyn. And he had a great new rescue dog that I was completely in love with and still am. So, and I was doing a play on Broadway. Um, 
I had just finished the play, but towards the end of the play, when I was trying to finish the last of the book and I couldn't figure out, it was just driving me crazy. And I would, after each, after the Sunday matinee, I would go to Sam's apartment and sit on the floor with Henny, the dog, and talk to him about the book. And not the dog, my son. <laughs> Even though the dog was also involved. <laughs> and might have been the whole key aspect to it all. Um, and one day I, I was saying, Sam, why did I do this? I don't understand. I don't understand why I spent these seven years driving myself crazy and it's so important to me and it's almost finished and I don't know what it's, I don't know what I've done or what it's about. What have I learned? What have I gained? And he said, oh my God, mom, mom, don't you see how different you are than you were seven years ago? How differently you think about yourself. And I went, oh my God, it was true. And I didn't know it until Sam pointed it out. It was true. In that seven years, in examining so much, things that I'd never talked about, things I didn't want to know, things I drug out of boxes and looked at with my eyes squinted because I still didn't want to know. And yet I owned this now, this information, I absorbed it. And I could see it all. I could see the life, and most, most especially I could see my mother and how we fit together and how we didn't. What happened at the end of it is that I was able to own my own history. I was able to finally feel what I had accomplished and that I'd done it on my own two feet. And I had never felt that before. Lovely. That's beautiful. Um, I, I want to ask Pam to, or someone, let us know on time, okay? Just stomp your feet a couple of times. <laughs> let me know on time, how we're doing time-wise. Okay. So let's talk about some of your romances. Most specifically, um, well, I need to talk about Burt Reynolds. Why do you need to talk about Everyone Burt calm down. <laughs> this is why. Because of how you started to write about him in the book. Mm -hmm. May I ask you to read something for me? Sure. Okay. And I'm not... I'm just... I, I want people to know what a great writer you are. That's okay. why I'm asking you this. Good. Okay. But it shows the struggle, which I thought was profound. How can I write about this? I walk around and around but can't make myself sit down and start. Can I find some truth in the shreds of my memory or the gibberish in my journals, in the letters I wrote and never sent or the letters he wrote and I kept? Can I paste it all together and make any sense out of it? And how can I dish out all these thoughts, these reassessments of a time that was so private and confusing when in my mind's eye all I can see is the press circling around like sharks smelling blood? I want to protect him from that from their ongoing titillation with him, protect him from me, but I can't. 
I'll write it. Maybe I'll leave it. Maybe I won't. Problem is, even if I delete it from the page, I can't delete it from my mind, my history, or my heart. If I write it down, maybe I'll understand it, finally. Thank you. So that's all I wanted you to say about, about, I just was very moved by that, and very moved, it was all this, you know, Hollywood splashy stuff, but when it came to writing about it in your book, that's the true story. That's the real thing. So if you want to read more, buy the book. Um, but I loved it. I loved it. Um, and I wanted to talk about, um, I guess, if you could say anything, and I want to get to questions, so I'm trying to keep, keep aware of, of the time that we have. One was, if you could say something to young women who are either wherever they are in their lives, if they're thinking about acting or if they're thinking about their lives, or if you could go back and say something, or right now say something to young women, knowing what you've known and what you've explored, what you've learned about yourself, and the answer to your lifelong question is, with, is in this book, what would you say? What, do, what is their advice or something that you would really want young women to know? Boy, that that's... Do you want to think about it? Well, like an hour or so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I honestly think that everybody has to travel their own road. You can't, no matter what I said, no matter what advice I gave to any young person sitting out there, it's only my advice. It's the stumbling down and making mistakes and falling in a pit and standing up and doing it again and dragging yourself out. and. You know, I, you can't really advise anybody how to do that. And when I was growing up, I was raised in the 40s. I was born in the 40s, raised in the 50s, came of age in the 60s. It was slightly a different time. Some things have slightly changed, but only <laughs> slightly. Um, there is the sense that women, for instance, have more of a voice, are able to say, no, I don't think I want to do that. Um, that, that, there is, that there are other uh, choices. Um, but that's, you know, that's not the real key ingredient in my, of the book. The key ingredient of the book, what I wrote about, is I tried to describe the patterns that were set into my childhood, the survival mechanisms that were so deeply ingrained in me that they kept perpetuating. Some of them were fail-safe devices that were wonderful. They saved me in my childhood. They even helped me in my early career, some of these systems that I'd set up, survival mechanisms. But as I got older, they were survival mechanisms that kept me from growing, that kept me from moving, that kept me stationary. And in, in a lot of ways, that disallowed me ever to really see anything other than what had just been printed in my childhood. And I think that all of us as adults, that's our task. All of us, to, you don't have to come from a you know, traumatic childhood, any 
patterns, childhood patterns that are no longer serving you because you're an adult and they're holding you in place. Our, our task as adults is to recognize where those patterns are holding us back and to unweave them, to get out of them, to figure out how you can just push past them somehow, to go to places that you wouldn't have gone otherwise. So, you know, any advice I would have to a young um, woman is just keep moving forward. Keep reaching outside of yourself. But that's for a young man as well as a young woman. You know, always wanting something that's slightly outside of your grasp or what's a heaven for, as they say. Something you can't quite reach. Um, and lots of people have said to me, well, Sally, you're, you're always so, then therefore, you never reach any peace. I'm yet to want any peace. <laughs> because peace to me has always seemed like quietness, like sitting back and accepting and, and just saying, I'm in a lovely spot, why move? And I guess all my life I've been frightened of that. Um, and maybe because it was around me, maybe again it's just a childhood thing that I still have to get over to recognize that peace is what we're all trying to reach. Ultimately, at the very end, I'm going to have peace whether I want it or not. <laughs> so, I do think that wanting something, wanting outside of yourself, wanting um, to know, to do, to reach, has got to be the only advice I have to give to anybody, man, woman, child, dog even. <laughs> Henny, my dog, my survival dog. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't think of anything else to, that has driven my life except want. Thank you. I'm struck too by um, listening to you, the voice in your head because there's you and you're talking, you're, you're writing about your life and your work and, and your family, but you, in many moments in the book you're saying, I wish I had said this, I wish I had done this, and, and I think that maybe from what I took away was listen to that little voice in your head and act on it and let it out, let it speak. So it was really, um, it was great. I would also like to talk about acting. And I think it's your first love. Be, it's, it's your devotion and your commitment to it. There's a great scene in their uh, book where um, Sally was uh, in classes with Lee Strasberg and told you that you were brilliant. And I just felt for you right there, like, oh my gosh. And I had a whole new, um, I, didn't, I, I never realized how much work you put into it. It's, you really killed yourself doing all these roles, Sybil and, you know, um, even the Flying Nun, you worked pretty hard on that. <laughs> and even, you know, but Mary Todd and all these things, how you transformed yourself and dug so deep. Um, and that, I just had a new appreciation for it. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's your first love, right? Acting. Yes. Well, There's no question there. I'm just rambling on. <laughs> no, well, we're just talking uh, yeah, It's true. I, I, I don't know that I would call it a love, but... Um, I found a stage, the first time I stepped on a stage, I was 12, 
because I was lucky enough to be a kid that, that uh, we didn't have any money, but I went to a public school in the San Fernando Valley. And um, in those days, they still haven't had an arts department, which is a terrible thing to take away from a child. Um, there was a theater arts department. There was an art department. Um, in those days, kids could go and learn to paint, learn to sing, learn to um, act. I had, I had a theater that I owned, and I was the queen of, <laughs> in junior high and high school. And to me, it, it wasn't the love of, because I didn't know anything about the craft. I, didn't, I had zero idea what I was doing. But the minute I walked on stage, the self-imposed fog that I lived in, which was part of my survival mechanism, I had li I lived in a muted fog. And, and when I was 12, it was this key time in my life. And the minute I walked on stage, the fog cleared. I could hear myself. I could see this the fellow standing next to me. I could behave exactly how I felt, whatever that was. And I was, it was an out-of-body, um, glorious, free moment. And I've, I've always called it, that I, said that I'd spent the rest of my life uh, chasing the fireflies on the edges of my eyes because that's what it felt like, something electric and alive happening. And so all through you know, junior high and then high school, I was on the, in the drama department constantly, constantly, constantly. And I didn't identify it with a love of acting. I identified it with survival. Because it was the only time I could be with myself. I could hear myself. I could feel what I was feeling and think what I was thinking. And when I got off the stage, I, I was incapable of doing that. I would go back in a fog. And I was muted and numbed. And um, so I had a deep desire to get to the stage. I had to get to the stage, which led me ultimately my whole life. Um, I, in, I graduated high school and had nowhere to go because nobody in my family said, how about the SATs, college? You, you, you thinking of a future? Nothing. And I didn't know what to do. Um, and just, you know, it was like fortuitous. Something reached out of, the, out of nowhere and grabbed me by the scruff of the neck. I had joined a workshop that my stepfather knew about, uh, which was located at, at Columbia Studios in those days in the middle of Hollywood on Sunset and Gower. Um, and they used the facilities one night a week. I didn't know about any other workshop. I'd never been out of the state. I'd never been on an airplane. And I joined, I did a scene with my mother from Lillian Hellman's Toys in the Attic. Wow. I know. Luckily, I didn't read the play, only the one scene. <laughs> Who knew you had to read the whole play? <laughs> and um, so I got into the workshop, and the first night of the workshop, the casting man from the television division of Columbia, Screen Gyms, came out um, of the gates was at night, and I was waiting there for my brother to pick me up because I wasn't allowed to drive at night. I was 17, and um, he asked me if I wanted to come on an interview the next day. Yeah. And um, I went on an interview, and I, I auditioned and auditioned and, re and then auditioned some more all summer long. 
and it was ultimately for a television series called Gidget. And so it reached out of nowhere and saved me. But it was my profound need to find acting, which was my only way to hear my voice, the only way to hear me. And um, it, that passion um, led, has led me my whole life. And how lucky are we for that? We're very <laughs> lucky. Okay. We're going to get to some questions. Um, Sally, this is from Stacy Cantor. Are you out there, Stacy? Sally, I love you. Who have you always wanted to work with but haven't yet? Spencer Tracy. Oh. Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> you know what? There's so many actors and actresses, and I call them, um, I call them female actors, um, that I would like to work with. So many. I couldn't even name... One and, and there's so many that I ha have worked with um, that I'm so grateful that I've had the opportunity to work with them. This, and there's more young actors coming up all the time that I go, wow, are they good. So I, I really couldn't, I couldn't name any except maybe Spencer Tracy. And the chances of that are really, really slim. <laughs> yeah. That last scene in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, that big speech on the patio. <laughs> That's a great, yeah. that's my favorite. Um, okay. S sorry? Um, what? Hmm? Did you eat school lunch? Somebody wanted to know. Someone wants to know if I ate school lunch? <laughs> okay. Oh, she's You're a, a lunch school. lady. Bless your heart. <laughs> you with the blue hair. <laughs> Did I eat school lunches? Not very much. I was always in the drama department. I would go right to the drama department. I can't remember if I ever even ate lunch. I think I sometimes packed a, a little something. Uh, but I never sat in, the, rarely sat in wherever people were sitting and, and, and ate lunch. But that's a whole other issue. <laughs> Could you um, comment on making Sybil? which I think is one of your most profound roles. That was, I remember that. Well, yeah. I talk a lot about that in, in the book uh, because it was a, you know, a, a, a major moment on a lot of levels. Um, on many, many levels, it was, it was again, like all of these things somehow coming together in such an oddly serendipitous way and that they fit in so succinctly with where I was in my life and the you know, propelled me forward to learn things about myself that I, that I needed to learn. Uh, Sybil certainly being one of them. Um, and you'll, if you read the book, you'll see how really massively important it was. And the wonderful writer of that um, was Stuart Stern, who lived here, lives here. Um, for a very long time. Yeah. Um, and only recently passed away a genuinely brilliant man. Um, Skerritt lives here too. Yes, Skerritt lives here too. He does, he does. Um, but um, 
I, I, it's almost like Sybil was so important, I couldn't capsulize it in a few sentences. I wish Stuart were, were here, uh, because um, I think he recognized some things in me when I came in on the audition. You'll see, because these were the auditions I went on where no one wanted me in the room. Literally no one wanted me in the room. And, um, but Stuart, I believe, was the first one to recognize something in me uh, that no one else did. Um, and then ultimately Joanne Woodward did and I became Sybil. But um, always uh, Stuart and his words and his screenplay. Um, what, a, what a magnificent piece of work um, that is, his, his four hour uh, screenplay. I wish they'd published that. Um, it's extraordinary, mm -hmm. Stuart's work. I still remember it. Um, okay, one woman said, or ma'am, Marsha Brown. My mother related to Emma in Murphy's Romance so much, the character gave her so much hope. Is there a character you have related to the most or have learned a great lesson from? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, you know what? I learned things from all of the characters, honestly. You, because you, the, the, the task of, of, of being an actor is that you, you, you absorb them. You, you, you find pieces in yourself that are um, aspects that they would have, and so you bring that part of yourself out, and then you try to subdue parts of yourself that they don't have. So in the remaking, the remodeling of your own who you are, you learn things about yourself from standing in their shoes. And I've learned a tremendous amount um, about people, about myself, about you, about all of us, by playing various people. Um, so, now maybe there's a couple of things I did that I learned nothing. I'm just glad to have it done. Yeah. But mostly I went away changed. How do you display your awards? I want to know. <laughs> Whoever asked that question, thank well, you. I, I, um, uh, let's see. Most of them are in Most. my house in in um, in California, in Pacific Palisades, um, just in a kind of a bookshelf with stuff, with books and with pictures that are leaning up against it and with memorabilia and stuff from the kids and little little handmade pots from the grandkids and you know just stuff all over the place and the the you know and the awards are are some of the awards are there and then I have as I told you about 7 years ago I, I got my dream thing which is a, an apartment in New York which I still have there and so some stuff is there um you know, some stuff on the walls that are certificates and things like that. But um, they're, they're kind of just scattered about. They're scattered about. And it, they, they're just memories, but nothing quite like the weight of doing the work for all of them. Um, that resonates uh, deeper, longer, forever. Have you directed or would you like to? No. Okay. <laughs> I have directed. Um, I have directed. I tried, but it, 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 it bothers me. 
I don't, it's not my nature. I realize I am so quintessentially an actor. I think from the inside out, I think I probably do as a human. Um, I think from the inside out, and directors have to have this vision, have to, have to be able to really think from the outside in, really, to see the whole scope of it. And I can't do that. I have a hard time going out there and, and seeing the whole scope of it. And I'm, believe it or not, I'm not especially a people person. I can fake it, and not even fake it. I mean, I can be that for a while, but it exhausts me. Um, whereas a director has to really, really be with people, crews and everybody, and helping every person fixing every problem in 38 hours a day. <laughs> and I just realized it's not who I am. I can, I can be concentrating on a character and preparing that length of time, or I can be doing the other things that actors do, but it's not my skill. It's not my skill set. And so I went, okay, well, I, I tried that because someone told me I should try it. And, and actually, Tom Hanks got me into that. <laughs> Well, not real. I mean, I'd already directed something, and he asked me and made me direct one of his Earth to the Moon episodes. And, it, and I had a good time. I just was really glad when it was over. <laughs> good. Tried it. That's enough. Um, I love this. What is it like to work with Daniel Day-Lewis? Um, I hope he doesn't retire, but who knows? But anyway, do you want to say... You hope he, he does or doesn't? I hope he doesn't Oh, retire. he won't. We won't he let said him. He, he said he was going to no, stop No, I know acting. it. I know. I know. Well, he's everything you would want him to be. He's, he's a, beyond being the actor that he is, he's a great, uh, lovely, generous, loving, funny human being. Uh, so I... It was just the greatest gift to me to be with him and work with him the way we got to work. And um, he's a diamond. He's a diamond. I do think he should do a comedy. <laughs> Don't you think? Let's like shake it up a little bit, DDL. Come on, quit being so precious. <laughs> I love this scene. You must read the book. There's a great scene about when you got the role of Mary Todd and, and uh, that scene that you did together. And um, it was just lovely. I, I think the world of him. So um, that was a real nice little treat in the book. Um, okay, here we go. My friends Susan and Joan and I have started the Motherfucker Society. Is this okay? Are we taping this? Does anyone care? Okay. No, Roxanne Gay was here. Who cares? Um, not to be MFs, but to call them out. We understand you use the term frequently. We feel like kindred spirits. <laughs> Comment any way you wish. So backstage, I said to Sally, do you curse? And she goes, fuck yeah. <laughs> Care to Comment. I love cursing. <laughs> Isn't that great but to I, know? I just find it absolutely empowering. Um, I, it came from the fact that when I was, a, you know, when I was about 19 and 20 in the 60s, 
I couldn't say those words. I couldn't say them. I couldn't say them at all. And so actually men around me used them, and boys used them as a form of sexual harassment because they would use really crude terms around me, and I was embarrassed, and I didn't know what to say, and I didn't know how to come back. So I learned how to come back, boys. <laughs> I learned how to out foul them beyond their wildest dreams. <laughs> Trust me. So that they would kind of go, oh. <laughs> you know. Because not only that, not only did I say something much more vulgar than they could have ever thought of, but they didn't expect it to come out of me. So um, I learned to use those words. And then I also realized that Lee and this is, this is, this is some in, in, in important information. Both Lee Strasberg, well, Lee Strasberg for one, would use, would tell an actor to shout a foul word when they were completely cramped inside themselves. And, you know, they couldn't get their voice out, they couldn't get their emotions out. And he would say something, you know, shout a swear word, whether it was shit or or something, because there's something guttural about it. it. Out of it comes something outside of your gut, because it is, it, it is, that's what the word is. It's not like saying marshmallow, you know? You can't, it doesn't do it. So, and when my, my middle son, when he was a tiny baby, um, when Eli was a very little baby, six months old, three months old, he, he started having, um, petite mal seizures, and they, he would, it would mean when he would start to cry, like a baby cries, you put him down in the crib and he cries really hard, and he reaches that point, you know, when it, when it sounds like his voice, his, his breath is stuck, uh, you know, and you wait for the kid, to, and then he, the baby goes, uh, you know, and keeps on crying. Well, Eli would get stuck at that point, and the cry would, and then the cry would stop, stop, and he would be not able to breathe, he'd be stuck. And he would go, begin to convulse and turn blue and pass out. And it was just, it was the most terrifying thing. And I, you know, they wanted me to do all sorts of brain scans and everything, but he would get mad. If you, if you held him down and put things on his head, that, that would cause it, because he gets mad. He would, didn't want to be held down. He got mad when you put him down for a nap. It was a little bit hard those years. And so when he was learning to walk, you know, when the, when the baby falls down, when his brother pushes him over, it's not only that he's scared, he gets mad. So the first words I taught Eli were, shit, honey, say shit. Say fuck, honey. Say fuck. You can do it. Say fuck. And by gum... By gum. They were his first words, and he no longer had seizures. <laughs> True. Because then he used his words, not his body, to speak for him. And that was absolutely the truth. Well, I can't think of a better time to close things down. <laughs> I want to say thank you to Sally Field. You. We loved having you. Thank you.